Happy Friday, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Critical Care Grand Round series. I'm really excited to introduce today Dr. Annika Law. So Annika Law is an assistant professor of medicine at Boston University. Um, I, I was really interested in having her here today because she focuses a lot on ICU survivorship, which I think is a lot of um, obviously what we think about when we're taking care of our critically ill patients, obviously we're thinking about how to get them out of the hospital and get them to survive and sort of what does that look like? But I think not a lot of us are actually um, seeing these patients when they come out of sort of the acute phase. And this is uh, obviously critically important to the work that we do. So um, Dr. Law, I'm really happy to have you here today. I'm excited to hear what you have to share with us. Um, and, and with that, I'll let you take it away. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. So let me just confirm again that the screen, you guys can see my slides. Yes, it looks perfect. Okay, great. All right. Yes. Um, like Andy said, I'm I'm really happy to be here. I um I always like the opportunity to go out and talk to other people at other institutions. And it also um gives me a chance to kind of see what other people do and how they organize their care and also a lot of times gives me new ideas. So um I want this to be interactive. I want you to ask questions. I want us to have a discussion. I think a lot of this does kind of lend itself very naturally to discussion. Feel free to um either you know come off mute and ask a question at any time or put a question in the chat. Um and then um I'm happy to pause and, and chat on whatever it is you're interested about. So um, going forward, so we're going to break up this talk into uh, three main sections. So first, we're going to talk about what ICU survivorship looks like. And so first, I want you to kind of think about how many patients you guys have been able to follow long term after their ICU stay, what you know about the challenges that they live with. Um, and then second, because a lot of the decisions that we make during the ICU, like decisions to pursue long term life support, um, can serve as a gateway to ICU survivorship. Um, amongst other people, patients who would other, otherwise die. We're going to talk a little bit about what kind of data exists to inform these, these decisions. And finally, um, this is something that I argue is relevant for really everybody in the hospital, um, whether you're in the ICU or step down or um, whether you're a pharmacy or a nurse or whatever. Um, I think we all kind of can do more to think about how we can diminish complications that ICU survivors face um, long-term. So these three icons are going to kind of benchmark where we're moving. Um, you can follow them through the talk to keep track of where we are in the talk. So first we're gonna start with the case. So this is Mrs. M. She's a 67 year old teacher. She's got COPD, diabetes, type two. Um, and she comes in through the ED and she's admitted to the ICU ultimately with pneumonia. Um, her oxygen requirements and her work of breathing start to escalate. So she meets criteria for ARDS. She's, she advanced from BiPAP to intubation. And in this case, let's just say she's, um, she's, she ends up with ARDS and is on low tidal volume ventilation for two weeks and she's eventually extubated, um, but she's still delirious. And now she's being transferred from the ICU um, to let's say the medical ward to tee up some remaining medical issues. Um, but the plan is ultimately to screen her to a sniff. So, but before she's transferred, before she leaves the unit, before she leaves your care, um, the husband asks you what he can expect from for her recovery. He he thinks, you know, you're the one who's seen most of this critical illness. What how how is she going to do after? He wants to know how much time she's going to be in the SNF, when she's going to go go home, how much stronger she's going to get. 
And one of the things he's most worried about probably is the fact that she seems intermittently delirious or confused. And she, she doesn't really remember anything that happened when she was intubated. And even now that she's extubated, she's asking questions about things that they just discussed, like her short-term memory is not, not intact. Um, and before she came in, she was cognitively sharp. She's 67, but she's not retired yet. She's working as a teacher and he's wondering, you know, it's, it's like, it's March, February right now. Um, can, can she go back to school later this year? So we're going to launch our first Zoom question here. And I think I can do it, Andy. Um, so the question is, have you had the opportunity to see patients in the weeks to months after an ICU admission outside of someone just like being readmitted? And the answer choices are yes, routinely on a weekly or monthly basis. Yes, occasionally, um, for example, on occasional rotations or rarely, not at all, on a, not on a planned basis. All right. So um, the majority of people are saying rarely, not on a planned basis, and um, a few people saying yes, occasionally, with one person saying um, that they regularly participate in the post-ICU clinic. So that means you guys do have a post-ICU clinic, yes? Okay. Great, um, but it just sounds like it's not something that's part of most people's routine care. And I think that's pretty typical. That's, um, I think, the case for most ICU practitioners. Um, can you guys see those results? These are. Yeah, we can okay. see them. Okay, great. All right, so, all right. So um, overall, our understanding of what ICU survivors experience has changed a lot in the last 20 years. And that has to do with the fact that mortality has gone down quite a bit. So as recently as like the 90s, um, survivorship after the ICU was really pretty simple. It was basically you either had a lower acuity illness and then you basically, you know, went home or you had a higher acuity illness and you basically died. Um, and and um, but combined, but advancements in care um, have led to this growing population of ICU survivors who face a wide range of difficulties. And some of these are impairments that can persist for years after hospital discharge. So to really illustrate how quickly ICU mortality has fallen over time, this is a figure that shows mortality rate in patients with ARDS over time. And so you can see in the 80s, average mortality was about 60s to 8, 60s to 70%. And then over about period of 10 to 20 years and not shown here as present day, but now we're sort of in like the 25 to 30%. And here on the right, you can see, um, you can see what's happening in sepsis mortality, which is very similar. So about 35% mortality to now about 25% mortality now. And, and this is all despite trends in severity of illness, um, either being stable or actually getting worse. And most of these improvements can be directly attributed to advancements in care. So for sepsis, for example, um, you know, for a while it was early goal-directed therapy, and then now um, sepsis bundles um, with ARDS, it's obviously low tidal volume ventilation. And so these are huge chunks um, in the number of uh, people who are surviving. And of these, the question is, um, what's the estimate of people living with long-term complications? So ARDS affects about 200,000 people per year. And so of these, about 70,000 people will die. And then there's an estimated 100,000 or about half of all ARDS patients who will have some form of complications or long-term sequelae. Um, and on an even larger scale, sepsis is like on the, on the range of 14 million survivors per year. So about half of those, so approximately like 8 million will experience some form of persistent long-term sequelae. So with these 
huge new group of survivors in the early 2000s, the field of critical care really came to the understanding that ICU survivors will face multiple challenges, number one being the profound disability that comes after critical illness itself, number two, the pre-existing impairments that they had before they were sick in the first place, and then number three, after critical illness, they have an increased risk for onset of new illnesses and, and a newly weakened state. So um, this is a statement by Jack Awashna, who's a leader in critical care, and um, he's this this piece basically publishes the fact that if the 90s and the early 2000s were about making large strides and improving ICU mortality, then um, the rest of the 21st century is going to need to be about improving morbidity and mortality. So in 2010, um, this is where they coined the term PICS that many of you may be familiar with. So PICS is the constellation of impairments post-intensive care syndrome that can fall into under one of three domains. So it's mental health, which can manifest as anxiety or PTSD or depression. There's cognitive impairments, which can include uh, executive function issues, memory, attention, um, processing speed, and then physical impairments like neuromuscular weakness or numbness or loss of some physical function like pulmonary, pulmonary cardiac function. And the issue with all of these is that these, these these are not just things that occur during the critical illness, but they are often persistent. So um, almost everybody will still have persistent impairments in at least one domain one year out, and over half will have multiple domains impaired um, one year out. Um, over here on the left is PICS-F, which is PICS for um, affecting family members and caregivers. And these are family members who experience grief or depression or anxiety. Um, a lot of these were caregivers who were present in the ICU at the bedside um, and witnessed firsthand the trauma of the ICU um, in ways that even the ICU patient themselves did not. So to further describe each of these three domains, I'm going to first describe each impairment using quantitative data, quantitative data. And then I'm going to share quotes from ARDS survivors, which came from qualitative interviews performed by Chris Cox. So together, the qualitative and the quantitative can give you a good flavor of what it is that the survivors are experiencing. So first, cognitive impairments in ICU survivors are probably best well, most well described in this brain ICU study from 2013. It's the largest observational study to date looking at cognitive sequelae of critical illness. Um, they looked at over 800 patients with respiratory failure or shock, and the vast majority of them, like 94% of them, had no impairments at baseline. Like they're like you and me functioning totally normal cognitively at baseline. And they divided the patients, the survivors, into three age groups, so less than 49, 50 to 64, and greater than 65. And here on the right, you can see these are like benchmarks to show um, what a normal cognitive function score would be. MCI stands for um, mild cognitive impairment, TBI is traumatic brain injury, and Alzheimer's disease. And what's so striking is that even in the young patients who, again, have no prior cognitive impairment at, base at baseline, a year out from their critical illness, they're scoring just like they have a traumatic brain injury or even early dementia. So um, on the qualitative side, um, one interviewer, one interviewee from the qualitative study said, I felt like I was in a cloud or something. I had no attention span. I couldn't get past two sentences before I was wondering what I was reading. It didn't stick. It felt like I was brain damaged. And new psychiatric diagnoses similarly are also very common. And so this is from Hannah Wunsch in JAMA 2014. And it's a population-based study of ICU survivors in Europe from 2006 to 2008. Um, and in this study, again, very few patients had any psych diagnoses. So less than 6% had some psych diagnosis before critical illness. But then after, the, there, 
the ICU patients had a hazard ratio of 22 compared to the general population for risk of new psychiatric diagnoses. And most often these are anxiety or mood disorders. Um, and not shown here is the increased use of psychoactive medications, which is maybe not surprising. A lot of people are ending up on some form of you know, antipsychotic or antidepressant um, during, their, during their ICU. So the subjects of the qualitative interviews describe their emotional liability um, as such. They say, I cry a lot more than I used to. I'm very emotional now, the least little thing I cry. Sometimes it just pops into my head. I mean, not when I'm asleep, just other times when I'm around the house. I'm in the hospital again, laying there with people around me and I can't move. So a lot of the PTSD memories are often related to physical uh, restraints, um, the endotracheal tube, suctioning, tracheostomies, um, and a lot of people complain of, or, or report an inability to communicate. And then finally, um, physical impairment. So a lot of us have long assumed that physical impairment just comes from ICU-acquired weakness that's you know, just from non-use during bed rest. But increasingly, we're understanding that it's, there's actual damage to both the nerves and the muscles. So with the nerves, inflammation is a major risk factor for impaired nerve conduction, axonal degeneration. Um, with the muscle fibers, there's impairment in the mitochondrial function. And shown here is data from Eddie Fan's study um, of 222 survivors of acute respiratory failure. And um, they looked at a wide range of outcomes and I only showed two of them here, but they looked at everything from like hand grip, respiratory muscle strength, um, six minute walk distance, which is shown here. SF36, which you might be familiar with is a quality of life survey. And they basically scaled everything from zero to one with one being normal. And you can see that there's large drops in these um, scales in the first three months, but um, even after two years out, so at 24 months, they don't really go back to normal in terms of where they were um, strength-wise. And uh, Chris Cox's interviewers, interviewees describe how profound their weakness is. So they'll say, to start with, when I tried to hold a cup, I spilled it in the bed. I couldn't brush my own teeth. I couldn't comb my hair. I wasn't able to pick up the covers and move them. I was like putty at first. I couldn't move my hands well at all. There was no feeling in my hands. Um, like I'd been out in the cold for a long time and it was clumsy. There's that like that, that hand dexterity issue. Um, just could hardly move. I would try to walk across the room, but had to sit down. I was so tired. It took forever to get anything done. And so we talked about each of those three domains, but each of those domains can affect each other and they can also affect other things. So ICU acquired weakness can, uh, can you can imagine worsen depression. And depression, anxiety, and PTSD can also worsen cognitive function, and all of them together can make your instrumental activities of daily living, like shopping, cooking, managing medications and finances, just really difficult. And so although PICS is traditionally defined by those three domains, um, the downstream consequences are being recognized as so intertwined that they're, they're part of the, the syndrome itself. So loss of employment, substantial healthcare costs lead to financial toxicity, that's considered now part of the whole syndrome, um, being vulnerable to new illnesses and readmitted within three to 12 months, and all of it kind of contributes to a loss of their social structure and supports. So one survivor from Cox's study says, my, my medical condition is my life now. People sometimes don't know what you go through. They think because you're on one piece, everything is fine, but inside I'm all screwed up now. There's that disconnect of feeling like you're alive, you're a survivor of critical illness and that you, know, you should be back to normal, but um, things inside really are not the same. So a lot of you might be thinking that a lot of the elements of PIC sound familiar with um, like long COVID, um, people describing the cognitive difficulties there, the fatigue and the weakness. And, 
I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that although the exact physiologic mechanisms underlying long COVID compared to critical illness are not fully characterized in terms of their similarities, I think a lot of people are hypothesizing that the inflammatory pathways of COVID um, have a lot of overlap with the inflammatory pathways that lead to, lead to PICS. So let's go back to Mrs. M. She definitely, as we talked about, has some cognitive and physical impairment. She's, she, she's got no short-term memory. And so she gets discharged to a sniff. And so initially she's able to participate in rehab, but about three weeks after her hospital discharge, she's readmitted to the ICU. So she's got recurrent pneumonia. And this time, as you can imagine, her condition's worse. She's got septic shock this time. She's on vasopressor. She's got renal failure. She ends up on CBVH. And two weeks in, um, you know, this time she can't be extubated. She's failed a bunch of SBTs. Her ATN hasn't recovered. So now she's on HD. And now the question is, um, what are we going to do about the fact that she can't be extubated? Her mental status is kind of off and on, waxing, waning. Sometimes she can follow commands, but she's got a ton of sputum production, ton of oral secretions. She's got weak cough. Um, and so just no one's feeling great that she's going to be ventilator free. Her husband wants to know what her prognosis is and how it's different than before. So clearly she's in a different place. She's got at least two major organs failing, her kidneys and her lungs and possibly her brain. She's relying on her machines, the dialysis circuit and the ventilator. But on the other hand, she's hemodynamically stable. She's no longer actively dying. She's kind of in this like this kind of limbo here. And you also note that two months ago, she was active as a teacher and she was functioning normally. And this is, this is the second part of ICU survivorship that we're gonna talk about. Um, so this is chronic critical illness. And the recognition of this stage came way before PICS. It's a lot harder to miss. So um, like I said, early in the 90s and 2000s, as we were having um, this group of survivors, there's this group of patients who had such severe illness that they would have certainly died in the first 24 to 48 hours, but now they're being like really pulled back from the brink of death, but now with severe organ failure. So they're dependent on some form of organ support to survive. And I'm gonna talk about two organ support modalities that we're probably most familiar with. And so first is trachs here on the right for long-term ventilation. And then on the right is PEGs or gastrostomy tubes, which um, on the, here on the right um, is for long-term um, artificial nutrition. So the decision about whether to place either of these is often made at some point where like Mrs. M, she's not dying imminently, but she's also not making a ton of progress toward recovery. So this is sometimes considered a transition point from acute critical illness to chronic critical illness. And to illustrate this point or to illustrate the data behind some of this, I'm gonna talk about some of my work on how PEG tube use in ICUs have evolved over time. So PEGs, um, as you guys are probably familiar with, used to basically be placed surgically. So um, in the 90s though, then we had the minimally invasive percutaneous placement and that really kind of exploded how often they were used. And the first few years of their introduction, they were mostly used in patients with dementia and aspiration. I'm gonna come back to patients with dementia in a bit. Um, but then it wasn't long before ICU patients started seeing pegs placed. And so to understand trends, trends in peg tubes, we looked at the HCUP National Inpatient Sample, which is a national um, sample of US acute care hospitalizations. And we looked at 1994 to 2014 ICU patients um, to see how things changed over time. And here's what we found. So on the x-axis, you have time, so 1994 to 2014. 
And the absolute number of pegs is here on the y-axis, um, plotted by um, the number of 100,000 US adults to adjust for changes in the size of the US population. And so you can see with the blue diamonds, the absolute number of pegs placed has increased a lot in the last 20, in, in this 20 year period. Um, so that, um, and, and the question is, what's the major reason for this massive increase? So the gray and the orange squares here are plotted against this, the, the right y-axis, which is percentages. And the gray and orange squares um, represent, the, so the, the orange squares represent the percent of critically ill patients receiving PEGS. So you can see it's pretty stable. Basically about two to 4% of all ICU patients are getting PEGS. So it's not really that we're placing PEGS in a higher proportion of ICU patients. Instead, as you can see in the gray triangle, which is the number of critically, the percent of critically ill patients per year, it's that we're having a huge growth in the ICU population, which is in large part due to an aging ICU, aging United States population. And we also looked at the changing disposition over time of ICU patients getting pegged. So you can see again, um, trends over time. Um, first, hospital mortality, which is hard to see, but it's the yellow X's decreased over time from 25% to about 11%. And at the same time, the number of patients going home and the blue diamonds um, decreased slightly. But most notably here, as you can see that there's a large growth in the number of patients who are now relying on long-term facilities on discharge. Um, of course, not everyone who gets a PEG is critically ill. So as I mentioned, dementia patient, patients with dementia um, were the primary group to receive PEGs in the early 90s. And so one thing we wondered was just not the proportion of ICU patients getting PEGs, how that changed, but also the reverse, what proportion of patients getting PEGs were ICU patients and how that changed over time. So we saw that ICU patients, which is the orange squares here, um, they make up a steadily rising proportion of PEG2 placement, such that they were only 20% of ICU patients, of, sorry, they were only 20% of the PEGs placed in 1994, but by 2014, they are now the number one utilizer of PEGs. In the meantime, the number of non-critically ill PEGs has steadily decreased. And that has to do with the fact that while PEGs were really common in patients with dementia, in the early 90s, um, it started, there started to become this concern that there were a lot of harms related to PEGs. There was infection, dislodgement, use of restraints in patients with dementia was extremely concerning. So um, by 2014, they issued statements to recommend against um, placement of tube feeds, and the, we now rarely do it, as you probably know, PEG tubes are not recommended in patients with dementia. And so the question I had in the back of my mind is, are we kind of repeating the same story with ICU patients that we're placing them aggressively in patients with critical illness, but there's no clear benefit, and then it'll subsequently decline? Um, that's to be determined. So just to step back to overall CCI, so our field's ability to provide long-term life support is just one of the factors facilitating the emergency of chronic critical illness. So how does it actually develop? So this is a figure adapted from Judith Nelson. It's like a seminal review of chronic critical illness. Um, and it basically describes CCIs most often occurring in patients who are older and who have chronic comorbidities. And I'm sure all of you have seen those patients. Then they become critically ill. And at some point, um, the subpopulation develops that has some combination of ventilator dependence, brain dysfunction, malnutrition, anasarca, skin breakdown, multi-organ failure in general. There's a lot of different specific definitions of chronic criticalness. Some of them, some people will define by the number of mechanically ventilated days. Some will 
you know, used other definitions based on whether you got a trach, by the number of days you were in the ICU, by the, whether you were admitted to a vent weaning unit. All of it doesn't really matter, these nitty gritty, but overall, um, all of these estimates uh, suggest that chronic critical illness accounts for a huge amount of cost, over $35 billion of cost for the US per year. Um, if you're interested in reading more about chronic critical illness somewhat casually, um, I'd recommend reading Daniela Lamas's book. She's an ICU and an LTAC physician. She often writes for the lay population, including this book, You Can Stop Pumming Now. Um, she also writes perspective pieces for the New York Times, and um, this, is, this is one of them about um, uh, making decisions to pursue long-term care. Um, and she's also referenced um, this page, this article by, um, in the new, she's also referenced She's also written this article in the New England Journal of Medicine, which basically is um, talking about how we and the intensive care unit created um, these this population, but then we're actually kind of interestingly shielded from seeing it. You know, that survey that um, I posted, most of you don't see it, and that was true for me too, because a lot of these patients end up going to an LTAC. And so we don't really often, we, we place these things and, we, and then we kind of just let them go, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about. All right. Um, I, so think even, um, oh, yeah. I think even like, um, sorry, I, but I think even like if you do go to post-ICU clinic, like I still feel like some ways you're shielded from it because by selection, like those are the patients that have some degree of more functional recovery. Like you really have to round in an LTAC, like you said. Yeah. You really see these patients that are like persistently in a hospital bed bound, intermittently needing antibiotics and meds and stuff. You know, even going to a post-ICU clinic, you're just seeing like the healthiest of the of, of the chronic critical illness. That's so true. That's the people who are like more in the PICS realm where they just, they can kind yeah. of return back to their life and look normal, but they have those like hidden deficits. Um, but I totally agree. The chronic critical illness is like really removed from, do you guys rotate through any LTACs or anything like that? The fellows who we really do don't are, are palm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, our attendings and the Palm Fellows do now that they're in the Palm Consults at Midtown. Oh, got it. Um, but is it a regular rotation? Yes, they. It, as of this year, it is for them. Great. Okay. Okay. Um, but you know, I think. It, sorry, this is Catherine Robinette. I'm sorry, I'm not. My camera's not working like it should today. Um, I just think it's very interesting too because I feel like culture has shifted so much like we're at a point where and people can feel free to disagree with me but I feel like over the past 10 years all of our faculty have been very on board with palliative care and often we feel like we're advising against these things yeah. and ending up there anyway and I would actually argue that all of our critical care fellows see these patients too because they bounce back, the LTAC is on the physical same floor of our community hospital. So they okay. see them in that midtown ICU all the time. So they see them on the second, on Our Lady's second trip. <laughs> she would end Got up it. potentially back in the midtown ICU. So they end up taking care of these very chronically, critically ill patients when they, every time they end up back in the ICU, which is frequently. Interesting. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that palliative care front. I actually, I didn't include this work in this talk, but I did um, publish a paper in the fall looking at um, rates of palliative care and DNR orders among patients 
um, Medicare patients who had been on the ventilator for at least 96 hours. And definitely there's like this dramatic rise in the last 10 years of palliative care delivery and DNR rates. Um, I totally agree with you. It almost in some ways, sometimes it almost feels like it's swung in the other direction that when a family um, does decide to, you know, pursue full, full, you know, steam ahead that we're often disappointed or we feel some sort of like moral um, dilemma about their decision to do that. And um, I feel like that's a little bit of, that's a the whole, uh, I could, you know, have a whole nother conversation about, about that and our feelings and, um, sometimes our imposition of our values on, on patient family decisions, but I completely with it, agree with you on the, on the, on the physician and caregiver provider desire to lean towards palliative care more often, especially in older patients. Um, so I'm just going to summarize here this last, this section. Um, so we talked a little bit about ICU survivorship as a field and how it's grown a lot in the last 20 years, how um, a lot of survivors, the majority of them will have some form of PICS, whether that be a cognitive, psychiatric, or physical impairment. And that there's also um, another population, the chronic critically ill population that has some more severe form of long-term organ support dependence. Um, so that's that section. Um, and now we're going to kind of describe the data behind the cortical, behind tricks and pegs. Um, it, so going back to Mrs. M, it's clear she's not going to be extubated anytime soon. She's intubated already for 14 days. So we're here to discuss a trick and peg. Um, and so here I'm going to launch the second poll, actually, if I can do that to see what it is that you guys think about. So what information do you generally convey uh, when patients and families ask about what they can expect after a trach and peg? Do you just talk about next steps, like just the logistics? Do you estimate mortality? Do you try and estimate their likelihood of going home? B and C is supposed to be both the latter, the last of the latter two. All right, so um, it looks like, uh, an even mix, um, lots of people just talking about next steps, which I, I um, think is probably what I used to do the most of as well. Nobody estimating six-month mortality, um, fully reasonable. And then, or actually some people saying it um, in the B and C doc, uh, option here, um, and some people just talking about the likelihood of going home. And here, I think I'm curious, um, for the people who either answered that they do talk about both mortality and likelihood of going home, or what the likelihood of going home is. I'm curious what you what you estimate for them. Just give you the, give you the answers. Oh, I'll go again. <laughs> as long as you don't get tired and now I got my camera working. No. Um, so I would say that I try to very much focus on like what the best case scenario is for the person. So I'm not necessarily giving them a percent of like what the likelihood is of going home, mm -hmm. but saying, you know, like in all likelihood, this person is going to be able to go home or not. Yeah. I feel like in our current case, she's pretty, like you've given us a pretty borderline case. Like there's no, I don't know how bad her COPD is, but there's not mm -hmm. necessarily this like unremitting, unremitting cancer or mm -hmm. her mental status is good. You know, certainly I think pre-hospital functional status has a, a big role in how patients do. Um, well, maybe not based on the data you showed us earlier, but at least some consideration, like they're not going to get better than they were before. Um, so I usually just try to give like what their chance are. And I think with her, I would feel pretty comfortable saying that she wanted to, she's not going to go back and teach this year, 
very possibly never again, the chance of forgetting home is questionable. Like we, we just don't know. Um, but the longer she stays, and I try to set things up where I'm mm -hmm. like, the longer she stays sick, the less likely right. it is that she will go home. So depending on kind of where the family is, they, you know, so we can readdress this and yes. or make sure if they're at a different LPAC, um, you know, in three months, you should readdress this because if right. she's still needing the vent and all this, then it becomes less and less likely. Right. Yeah. I love that piece about setting expectations should things change in the future so that they kind of um, know, okay, well, this is a bad sign. Um, and I love that piece. So um, we were, it's funny, we were just talking about how that kind of chronic critical illness piece is often removed. And so this is actually what sparked my personal interest in the first place. So in residency, I was the same way. Um, we never saw the chronic critically ill patients, but in fellowship, um, we had something called the RACU, which is this 12 bed unit. And um, there's a pulmonologist, a nurse, a respiratory therapist, and it's very similar to basically an LTAC. They're not acutely critically ill patients. There's, they're not on any, they're not allowed to be on any pressors. Um, and, and so, and these are basically mostly patients who need prolonged mechanical ventilation. And so, although in the past, I never really had to face them and, and, and fellowship, I suddenly was like, faced with this population that I had to care for. And it, it felt to me at the time like a population of people that we couldn't really save. And that's what an LTAC often feels like to me too when I rotate through an LTAC. And the thing that really troubled me when I was in the RACU was, is this state of chronic critical illness what the patients and their families thought they were getting into? So for example, when they were first faced with that decision for a trach and peg, um, what did they expect? Um, and it felt like at the time that the biggest factor in whether they did end up pursuing a trach and peg was whoever that physician happened to be leading the goals of care, whoever the attending was on, because there wasn't a lot of objective data to tell the family, um, you know, specific numbers, and there was a lot of room for spin, um, either a positive spin or a negative spin that could influence what, what really happened. So when I was in fellowship, I, you know, that bothered me. I felt like we needed more information to fill this information gap. Um, and so that's how I ended up studying what I study now. And so that question that I posed to you guys, I posed on Twitter um, uh, a while ago as well. And the first question, I broke it into two pieces. So when you counsel ICU patients who are older um, about trach and peg, what do you estimate to be the cohort's 90-day mortality? And most people said that they don't estimate mortality. And similarly, when you counsel ICU patients who are older about um, before a trach and peg, what do you estimate to be their median number of hospital-free days, as in how many days do you estimate will be at home? Um, zero, 15, 30, and again, here, most people said that they don't estimate hospital-free days, and that's because there wasn't, there literally wasn't any data on that. So um, I'd argue, though, that those are pretty important outcomes. I think especially the one about how many days you're going to have at home is something that a lot of patients care about. Um, there have been studies that show that what matters to patients at this stage is being home, um, and that a lot of patients hope that the trach and peg is temporary, just enough to get them stronger in an LTAC so that they'll ultimately go home. And um, the question is, does that actually happen? Do they ever really make it home? And how many days alive and out of institution do they spend um, after getting a trach and peg during critical illness? And with most of us working in the silo that is the acute short state hospital, we kind of have a poor understanding of what their time looks like in the institutions outside of the hospital. So to do this, we looked at um, a data source that captures both short state hospitals as well as out of hospital data to get the full picture. And so for that, we used Medicare. 
um, which contains both um, inpatient and outpatient data. And we found that um, between 2012 and 2015, um, of, we looked at patients who were admitted to an ICU and got a trach and or PEG. Um, then we looked after their trach and PEG placement and looked for how many days that they were not in a SNF, an LTAC, or readmitted to a hospital. Um, and we also looked at their um, mortality um, in the three months to a year after they got their procedure. And so here's what we found, and I know this is a lot of data. So um, up top, we have trach patients only, PEG patients only, and then the patients who got both. And um, for the sake of time, they're all pretty similar. So I'm just gonna highlight um, the patients who got a trach and a PEG. So this is a Sankey figure that kind of proportionally shows what happens to groups of patients over time. And we can see here that about 10% sorry, this here is 10% um, die in the hospitalization during which they got their trach and PEG, and that doesn't seem terrible, 10% mortality. Um, but then we see that about 90%, actually over 90% are, are really discharged, not to home, but to a SNF or an LTAC. And then here's where we find information that we didn't know before, which is that although our inpatient mortality is so low at 10%, um, almost half of patients are actually still dead by 90 days. So I don't know if we expected that if we placed a trick and peg that they would still be such high numbers of people who were dead within three months of getting a life-sustaining treatment. Um, and these are the timelines of what happens to patients to get a sense of how many days outside of institutions. So again, we're going to take the patients who had both a trach and a peg, um, and we can see that they had a hospital length of stay just over three weeks, so 24 days, and that also doesn't sound terrible. But then, because most of them are not going home, they're going to a, a SNF or an LTAC, when we count out um, 90 days counting from their procedure, um, we see that the median days that patients spend alive and not in an institution, so DAOI is days alive and out of institution within 90 days, that median is zero. And then when we count out 180 days counting from their, their procedure, we see that some of them do go home. Um, the median here is now 32 days. Um, but 32 days is still out of 186 months, spending 32 days at home is, is, is still really quite low. And then we also, not shown here, but we looked at the, the, patient, the group of patients who are dead within six months, and that's over half of patients who are dead within six months. And we found that their median days alive in the 180 days after procedure was zero, which means that more than half of patients who get a trick and peg die within six months and never got a chance to go home in that time before they died. Um, and since we know that pre-ICU health contributes to overall prognosis, we also look to see were there any, like stratified by what they were like before they came into the hospital. Um, you hinted about like, you know, we don't know about Mrs. MCOPD. Well, we wanted to see what kind of pre-ICU states might predict a better outcome for trachs and pegs and, and both. And we stratify patients by whether they had cancer, chronic organ failure, were frail. This is mostly about falls, really, um, or some combination of the three, and found that all of them had kind of poor outcomes except for the robust group. So basically, unless you had no chronic comorbidities, um, you were going to have very few median days alive and out of institution. So to summarize this section, among older patients who got trach and or PEG during critical illness, we found that almost half were dead within three months, more than half were dead within six months, and very few had days alive and out of institution in the first 90 days. And that that was true for all groups of comorbid conditions, um, only those without any prior comorbidities did better. 
So obviously this is very sobering information um, and we touched on this a little bit already, but I, I think here now the goal is just to kind of convey the information and give that um, objective information to patients and families and kind of just let them make their decisions with eyes wide open. Um, and, and, you know, people are free to do what they want with, with the information that they have. And sometimes I get the question of, do you see people actually change their decisions based on this data? And I think the question, the answer I would give there is like, no, I actually don't. And I, I don't think I really find that surprising because I think a lot of patients and families don't make decisions based on data. They make a lot of these decisions based on emotions or feelings or um, fears. And um, to kind of enter in rational objective data can sort of be difficult to kind of process that. But I think the goal there is to not necessarily change their decisions, but to change their expectations so that, um, you know, as things progress down the road, they kind of have a, a benchmark up to, okay, is this normal? Is this not normal? Is this what was what we expected going forward? Um, so lastly, I'm going to move to our third and final section. Um, so what can we be thinking of here in the hospital to make life a little less complex for ICU survivors after discharge? So um, I'll, I'm going to focus on hospital interventions rather than post-ICU clinics for a couple of reasons. So first, in-hospital goals are probably most applicable to all of us here. I think as, you, as we saw in the survey, very few people are in post-ICU clinics anyway. Um, and there's also not a, a, a ton of great data so far about what post-discharge interventions are the best to um, change outcomes. So here's my last poll for you guys. Awesome. So a great spread here. Um, oops, still going. Early mobility going like gangbusters. Um, most people voting for that. Um, and uh, reducing sedation, uh, getting a few votes. Early nutrition, getting a few votes, one vote, and early cognitive therapy. So let's go through this. All right. Um, I would just say, I find that I've seen this data, and I always think it's very complicated though, because in order, if you do early mobility, you're almost by definition decreasing sedation. Yep, exactly. We're gonna work up where you've hit the nail on the head. We're gonna talk about that. Um, so to understand how we can best prevent complications, we need to understand the risk factors for PICS and CCI in the first place to see what's modifiable. Um, I think a lot of, clearly a lot of the morbidities experienced after ICU come from the critical illness itself, but the key is to understand what aspects that we might be inducing via our medical interventions, our procedures and medications to sort of minimize or prevent to what to the degree that we can um, the occurrence of, of PICs occurring. So first we're going to talk about sedation. So deep and prolonged sedation during mechanical ventilation, especially with benzos, um, is still pretty commonplace. And I, I'm kind of curious what you guys do in terms of what sedation you guys target or how you target your sedation levels. Um, but for now, I'll just say that lighter sedation or even no sedation has been shown to be safe. And there's probably at least two reasons why we often favor deep and prolonged sedation. And that's because first, they're somewhat easier to take care of. There's less risk of self-extubation. And second, it was genuinely believed that um, it was in their best interest to kind of be unaware of the trauma of critical illness. But as we've kind of discussed previously, that dream state uh, really often leads to nightmares and PTSD and can actually be more traumatizing to patients. So 
One of the earliest interventions to decrease post-ICU complications is to, um, is to try and decrease sedation. Uh, and this is their trial design. So this is Tim Gerard's study in 2008. Um, they basically had SBT as a control arm. So daily, every 24 hour SBT, and then pairing that with um, a daily interruption and sedative. So an SAT or a spontaneous awakening trial. And they found that this daily interruption and sedatives resulted in A, earlier extubation, B, earlier ICU and hospital discharge, and C, lower mortality in the year after. So that was like, you know, there's not a whole lot of ICU trials that have that big of a impact. Um, so this was kind of a big deal. Um, Self-extubation rates were higher in the patients who got SATs, but they actually had similar rates of needing reintubation, maybe suggesting that we can potentially also extubate patients sooner. Um, and but the hard part is, is that this, this approach to limit sedation really takes team buy-in. Like in particular, you need to have safe nursing ratios. Um, you need to have nurses who have the bandwidth to kind of monitor patients who are lightly sedated. And it also requires house staff and fellows and attendings to all check in with the patients to make sure that there's the right balance between pain control and limiting sedation. Uh, some trouble with my mouse. Um, and other trials have looked at whether a family presence in the ICU um, makes an impact. So this is a meta-analysis looking at a bunch of studies that had um, either flexible or restrictive visiting policies. And they looked at those impacts um, on anxiety and delirium. And as you can see here, uh, flexible visiting policies were found to be associated with lower odds of delirium and improvement in anxiety symptoms. And this has obviously been a hot topic with COVID. Um, the downsides of having flexible visiting policies is often, in, in one survey, they noted that there's higher odds of burnout amongst ICU staff, um, but then another suggested that there's also higher ICU staff satisfaction, so I think it kind of goes both ways. And then as a result of Tim Gerard's sedation study, as well as just in general, the um, body of work showing um, the benefit of treating delirium or uh, preventing delirium, including, including family. Um, this was this large uh, bundle, IBCDF bundle, um, published in 2019, which kind of bundled everything together. Um, they did this, this, the design of this is pretty cool. It was a non-randomized prospective study looked at 15,000 patients. And the cool thing about it was that they not only implemented the bundle, but they also recorded the consistency of um, which element of the bundle was implemented. And so they basically, here you can see the proportion of bundle elements that were performed. And you can see that there's basically a dose response relationship, which is the more elements of the bundle that you implemented, the better chances were that the patient would be discharged from the ICU and the hospital and survive to seven days. Um, on the other side, also the lower likelihood that they were going to require mechanoventilation the next day or have coma or delirium or require physical restraints. Um, Hence, I don't know if you guys have incorporated the ABCDF bundle, but it is often standard in, in many ICUs. So a lot of you um, liked the choice of early mobility, and a lot of you probably noted that the E in ABCDEF stands for early mobility. Um, and think uh, maybe some of you may have seen the more recent study in NIJAM a few months ago about early mobility. So, so first, where did the where did the early mobility come from? So this is the 2009 Schraker paper that was the first one to really show the benefit of early mobility. And so what they did was um, patients had their in the intervention arm they had their sedatives interrupted and were visited by PTOT. Um, even unresponsive patients had some passive range of movement, um, and then as responsive patients could progress, they were escalated to more and more 
and more care. So you can see here um, that there was a nice divide in the proportion of patients who were ultimately able to achieve functional dependence um, based on whether or not they got um, early mobility or not. So, but this is the this is the more recent team study that was published in the New England Journal in the fall, and it shows that um, in mechanical ventilated patients, there was actually no difference now in hospital-free days, mortality or ventilator-free days, ICU-free days, or even functional outcomes at six months. So, so why the difference between the Schreikert study and the more recent NEDRM study, and what are we supposed to make about early mobility? And I know a lot of you like that choice. And so here's what I think you can kind of take away from both of them. So basically, it's important to know that the 2009 study compared, um, both of them compared usual care. So what's usual care? In 2009, usual care meant no PT at all. So zero PT, that was the comparative group. Whereas in this study, the 2022 study, even the control arm got on average nine minutes of PT per day. So not nothing. Um, and the other key point here is that the team, even the team authors noted that their intervention began mobility at the highest level of activity possible, whereas the Schreikert study in 2009 kind of started low and then gradually ramped up. And that might be why there's a higher risk of adverse events seen in this newer study, because they were kind of starting more aggressively. Overall, I think it's a little hard to know what the final takeaway is on early mobility. I think that most would agree, just like Catherine mentioned, that the underlying issue is limiting sedation. And so limiting sedation is important, whether it's to mobilize patients or not, and that um, some mobilization might be helpful, but the timing and the aggressiveness is still somewhat unclear. So I'm going to quickly go over a few other interventions that have been tried with mixed results. ICU diaries, some of you may have heard about, they're um, where nurses and family members and even doctors and social workers write in a little book by the bedside to say, like, this is what happened today. And that can kind of foster formation of actual memories in patients who were not fully aware of what was going on. They've been beneficial in really small RCTs, but a larger RCT did not show a benefit. Early cognitive therapy was voted on by a couple people here in this group. Um, there was a pilot study that looked at um, patients comparing PT only or PT with twice a day cognitive therapy. There was no difference there, but it was a very small pilot study, and I think more data needs to be gathered there. Insulin protocols, um, the goal there is that normal glycemia reduces ICU-acquired weakness, so helps with the functional part of things, but a lot of people are worried that the neuropsychological harm of hypoglycemia, like being too aggressive, um, kind of diminishes the overall benefit of an insulin protocol. And then finally, um, early nutrition. I think this has been an ongoing debate for as long as ICU has been in you know, a field. But um, since critical illness is an uncontrolled catabolic state, there's been a lot of thought that you know, given the, or the energy demands, the protein loss, that optimizing nutritional intake is important, but so far, um, no studies have shown a clear benefit to long-term reduction of PICS symptoms. So that's our third so final section, prevention is key. The most important thing to do to, to improve ICU outcomes is to limit sedation and to try to prevent delirium and involve family wherever possible to try and um, reduce that delirium. Um, gentle early mobility may be helpful, but the timing and intensity is still to be seen. And with that, um, a couple minutes shy, I don't think I left enough time for questions, but um, I'll conclude. So we looked at um, ICU survivorship, PICS, and CCI. Um, we found that ICU survivors have psychiatric, physical, cognitive impairments. 
Um, we talked about the growth of chronic critical illness in the United States. Um, in section two, we talked about some of the data behind trachs and pegs. And then in section three, we talked about the importance of reducing sedation um, in the ICU. So overall, I hope that was informative, um, hopefully shed some light and um, I'm open to questions.